That dreaded Schedule F, though now revoked, could make a comeback if a Republican president steps into office. The 2020 executive order aimed to make about 50,000 senior career employees at will and therefore easier to fire, but with the goal of improving accountability. Now, that highly debated Schedule F order from the end of the Trump administration got both praise and damnation during a recent panel hosted by the National Academy of Public Administration. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman heard both sides of the story. The Schedule F executive order, which Trump signed in October 2020, sought to reclassify tens of thousands of career positions in the federal workforce. It created a new schedule in the accepted service called Schedule F and gave agency heads the authority to reclassify certain policy-related positions from the career civil service to the accepted service. The order gained harsh criticism from unions, federal employee organizations, and Democrats in Congress, but proponents of the now-defunct executive order are still defending the policy's intentions. Two former Trump administration officials said the current process for firing federal employees is too difficult, and at its core, Schedule F is about improving the accountability of the federal workforce. James Shirk is a former special assistant to Trump. I spoke to one uh, political appointee in charge of management and agency. He was explaining, look, under the current system, you can fire a federal employee. It's possible. But it is a lot of work. It's going to take about a quarter of a supervisor's time for six months to a year. So if you've got someone who's terrible, maybe you'll fire one you're really motivated and don't have a lot else to do, you might fire two. But you're not going to do much more than that. The process is the punishment. The supervisor gets put on trial, and it's an extraordinary amount of work and effort uh, on the part of the supervisors. And so the the path of least resistance, as recognized and disliked by federal employees themselves, as well as by the supervisors, is you just let it slide. Some of the the previous MSPB surveys and studies find federal managers saying it takes, quote, heroic efforts to fire a federal employee. There's a lot of you know, hardworking and uh, upstanding uh, managers and supervisors and the federal employees. But for the most part, they're not heroes. They're just trying to run an agency. And taking on that degree of effort and uh, distraction from their uh, their main job uh, is a lot to ask of folks. And you know, yes, there's a, a sort of management issues, but process feeds into that. If fully implemented, feds in those policy-related positions would have been moved outside merit system principles and making them at-will employees and easier to fire. President Joe Biden revoked the order in January 2021 before agencies could begin implementation, but a few agencies did take the initial steps in that direction. Although touted as a way to more easily remove poor-performing federal employees, those against Schedule F said the order was a veiled attempt to restore the spoils or patronage system of the 1800s-era federal government. It's a system where an elected party official was able to easily bring in political loyalists to work alongside them. Mary Guy, a distinguished professor at the University of Colorado and panelist at the recent Napa event, expressed her fears about the order's potential revival. I'm very concerned that Schedule F appears to be designed as a hammer to treat all issues as if they are a nail, when in fact these are different issues. The U.S. is a megastate. It is huge. And government is not business in any way, not in its ends, not in its processes. If we want to hold on to a democracy, we have to think hard about the processes we used in order to do that. Why throw a hand grenade in a system that has worked, not without flaws, but it has worked for well over 100 years? Let's think more broadly about exactly what the problems are and what it would take to fix specific problems without moving more closely toward the murder of a democracy. 
But James Shirk, who's currently director at the Center for America Freedom and America First Policy Institute, says the intentions of Schedule F were much more about accountability. If we wanted to do a patronage system, if that was the purpose of the whole thing, we would have just created a whole bunch of Schedule C positions. The order would not have had the entire language that said agencies, by the way, you're not going to commit prohibited personnel practices. You didn't need Schedule F if you wanted more patronage jobs. You could have just created 50,000 Schedule Cs. Very deliberately, that's not what the order did. And I think, again, you know, taking a point, we should learn from history, and the, the order is learning from history. But still, the process for firing federal employees right now is far from impossible. James Christian Blockwood is the Partnership for Public Services Executive Vice President. More than 10,000 uh, federal employees are removed from their unit or organization annually, which comes to about 40 or so a day. And uh, more than that are disciplined. So the idea that they can't be fired, uh, you know, that um, is probably not uh, the best view. It's much more, it is a difficult and complex system and a lot of work has to be done to get there. And there needs to be senior leadership to support those decisions of, of managers and supervisors. And so let's do work there. But the former Trump official said reinstating Schedule F would actually quell concerns of federal employees. Michael Regas, former acting director at the Office of Personnel Management during the Trump administration, said there is overwhelming dissatisfaction among federal employees and managers about the system for addressing performance management issues. Most federal employees, most civil servants want to do a good job for their senior leadership team, and most do do a good job. The concern is not about those employees who want to do a good job and do do a good job, but those who are unwilling or unable to do that. What are the steps you're able to do to take? Among all the arguments, both for and against Schedule F, Blockwood of the partnerships said the conversation often doesn't get to the heart of the problem. He says the best solution to performance management challenges for the federal workforce is much more complex. It should focus on restoring public trust in government and creating bigger, more meaningful changes to benefit the federal workforce overall. And that includes how to both hire and fire faster, but with more confidence. Let's use data um, and let's have real conversations that will allow for long-term and meaningful ways of reform. Now, again, where, where I would place uh, some of the most emphasis on would be hiring on the front end. And there's things that we can do there and there's agreement around that. Training um, to supervisors and managers on how to go through this very complex performance management system. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to 
President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.